Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and welcome to another Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Megan O'Hare, and today we are going to be talking about neuroinflammation and microglia in Alzheimer's disease using mouse models. I'm delighted to introduce our three panelists who are all based at the UK DRI at Cardiff University. We have Dr. Sarah Carpanini, a research associate who met her husband over the cooked chicken counter at a popular supermarket. Dr. Tom Phillips, who initially trained as a medical doctor before being drawn to the bench side and is now a research associate with 17 pets. I hope that's still correct. Otherwise, that's a really sad story. There's <laughs> actually more. Oh, okay, good. More is good. Uh, and Dr. Megan Torvell, a research associate, but also a dignity and well-being contact, which sounds amazing. And hopefully we can find a bit out a bit more about that and supporting ECRs later. And she also has a great name, spelt correctly. <laughs> uh, so hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Uh, can we just start with just a quick introduce yourselves let us know who you are so we can hear your voice tom shall we start with you yes so i'm tom uh i work as a postdoc in phil taylor's lab at the uk dri uh looking at pcr2 mutations in my clear okay great um next on my screen is sarah so hi i'm sarah and i'm a postdoc in paul morgan's group in cardiff dri and i work on complement at the synapse okay and um, megan and I'm Megan Torvell, and I work with Sarah in Paul Morgan's group, and I'm interested in neuroinflammation and complements in Alzheimer's disease. Okay, great. So I think I'm right in saying that you all have a gene protein of interest that is your particular focus, but more broadly, you are all studying the role of neuroinflammation in neurodegeneration. So right back to basics, what are we talking about when we say neuroinflammation? People are probably fairly familiar with the immune system, our bodies used to fight infections, but how does it actually work in the brain? Maybe Megan, we can come to you first, as I think you've worked on inflammation in two different disease models, is that right? Yeah, so um, when we think of immunity normally, uh, we think of immune cells fighting uh, pathogens, whether that's like viral or bacterial invasion, um, but the immune system exists more broadly just to maintain what we call homeostasis, so just maintain normality. Um, so there are sensors throughout your body which uh, exist to detect um, when things go awry. So that could be um, cancer cells dividing rapidly, or it could be um, a pathogen invading, or it could be a protein which is either misfolded or accumulating in the wrong place. And that's something that happens in all sorts of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, it's often different proteins for different diseases. Um, and there are immune cells called microglia, which exist in the brain, and it's their job to detect those changes um, and then respond appropriately. Um, but unfortunately, that immune response often gets out of control. Um, and so the neuroinflammation starts to drive the disease. And that's sort of what we're, all, all of us are focusing on, is how neuroinflammation drives the disease. Um, so during my PhD, I was working on 
a mouse model which which overexpressed a human mutant tau protein. So that was sufficient to mimic tauopathy disease. Um, and now I'm working on a mouse model of amyloid pathology. So amyloid and tau are the proteins that accumulate in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the thing that both of these models have in common is neuroinflammation. Um, so nowadays, I'm working on a really niche part of neuroinflammation along with Sarah, um, which is the complement cascade. So complement is it's a cascade of proteins and it looks really, really daunting um, and unfriendly to an outsider, but it can be reduced down to quite simple concepts. There are um, initial proteins which are involved in recognizing um, invading pathogens or damage associated signals. And then there are three outcomes from the pathway, which are cell recruitment. Um, so that's recruitment of immune cells to the site of damage or infection. Um, formation of a MAC pore, which is a membrane attack complex pore um, in the membranes of infected cells or unhealthy cells. And finally, um, coating cells or protein deposits with uh, eat me signals so that um, microglial cells can come along and eat those um, unhealthy cells or proteins. Um, so we think that complement becomes dysregulated and neuroinflammation becomes dysregulated in disease and that's what Sarah and I are trying to understand um, and so yeah that's what I'm working on at the moment. Okay so the complement cascade you said uh, there can be three pathways coming out of it cell recruitment um, a MAC pore was it? Yeah membrane attack complex pore. Okay and the coating the cell or the protein with a signal to other cells to come and destroy them because they're yes. Yeah. What causes the complement cascade to be initiated in the first place? So uh, that's actually what we're trying to work on. Maybe Sarah should take that question. So there are multiple different things. So in terms of, I, so I specifically look at the synapse. So at the moment, I'm trying to figure out what causes complement to bind at the synapse removal. Now, in terms of what causes complement to be activated in the first place, there are multiple different ways that it can be activated. It's a response to pathogens, to dead or dying cells, and it's basically the complement system is part of the body's normal innate immune response. So it normally happens within the body. It has a perfectly essential role. What we're looking at is what actually causes it to be activated within Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so is it... Um... You said it's part of the innate immune system. Just very quickly, which one's the innate immune system? Is that the B cells and antibodies? No, it's the other one. So innate immunity is like the fast response that's um, very much dependent on uh, generic pattern recognition. So uh, there are things that recognize like sugar molecules or um, the like the outer membranes of bacteria and that sort of thing. Um, these are not super specific, like antibodies. Um, this is just very generic recognition. Okay. And the complement is obviously present in the brain. Does it, is it generated in the brain or can it cross the blood brain barrier? Yeah, it is generated in the brain. Um, there's quite a lot. It's one of those things that we're really trying to pin down as a group where the complement is being made. We know that, um, 
from lots of kind of RNA seq type experiments, we know that microglia can make complement. Um, and we know that in neurodegenerative diseases, obviously we have blood brain barrier breakdown. So infiltrating cells can uh, come in and make complement as well. Um, but there's also evidence that neurons can make it. So that's another thing we're interested in is what is stimulating the cells to make the complement in the first place. Okay. It's another program of work that we've got ongoing at the moment is for all the different complement proteins is finding what cells make them. Are they made in the brain? If they're not, are they coming in? Are they infiltrating? It's one of our other avenues we're looking at. Okay, so maybe Sarah, we can pick up from you a bit more about the synaptic loss that you discussed, that that's your main focus. Yeah, okay. So first of all, just to make sure that everyone's aware of what the synapse is. So the synapse is a microscopic gap, which is actually 1,000 times thinner than a normal human hair. And it separates the terminal end of one neuron from another neuron. And when neurons communicate, they release signals that must travel across this gap to the post-synapse. So it might be tempting to think of the synapse as a gap, but it's not. It's actually a very well structured with a complex infrastructure. So what we know that happens is we know that C1Q and C3, which are part of the classical complement cascade, so they're right at the top of this cascade, they tag synapses for removal. So they come along and they stick to the synapse and they're there. And then you've got the microglia, which are the immune cells in the brain that Megan and Tom work on, and they come along and these, they recognize these complement tags on the synapses. And they say, actually, look, I recognize that. I'm going to come along and I'm going to eat that synapse. But what we're not sure of is what's causing these complement molecules to stick in the first place. Why does one synapse get eliminated and others remain intact? Is there an eat me signal or is there a don't eat me signal? That's really a very big foundation of work at the moment that loads of people around the world are trying to figure out. We know it happens. We just don't know why. Okay, and uh, you said that neurons themselves can potentially make complement. Is that right? So it could be a whole internal process of that neuron making its own complement. It could be, but we know that C1Q and C3 are mainly produced by microglia. So maybe, Tom, you can jump in now because we've heard microglia mentioned a couple of times and you work on them specifically. So I guess the big question is, are mouse microglia the same as human microglia? Uh, it's a tricky question. Um, yes and no. Microglia are basically just tissue resistant macrophages. Um, so they go through the same process in the mouse and in the human during development. So they derived originally from the yolk sac and they migrate to the brain and set up there and spread out through the brain and develop the basic system of immunity in the brain. But that's the same in the mouse and in the human. But obviously the mouse and human split off evolutionary however many million years ago. Um, and immunity itself is a site of high degree of change evolutionary wise. They've got lots of different immunity challenges, lots of different things encountered by the mouse, not encountered by the human. So there are some quite key differences uh, in receptor presentation, for example. Um, interferon gamma to like four are all different in the human compared to the mouse. And some drugs that we put in mice completely wipe out as a... Um, an anti seizure drug you can put into mice that wipe out microglia in the mouse, but in the human seems harmless. So there are differences, but it is important that the key things about the macrophage and the microglia are really maintained throughout. So they are cost comparable as long as you're very careful about what you're looking at. This is sort of a Megan and Tom question. You said you worked on a, a model during your PhD that was 
using tau in mouse and was that human tau in mouse yeah so that model was over expressing um human tau so it was quite an artificial model but the the mouse microglia they still responded in the same way did they so this is sort of back to tom maybe yeah. so the, usually these models the microglia responds almost exactly the same way as they will in humans but there are nuanced differences which you have to be careful with but the basic structure and the basic response systems are the same. Yeah, it's just if you're overexpressing a human protein. Well, I mean, the thing, when you're looking at a mouse brain model and you're overexpressing tau or amyloid or anything like that, really, you've got an artificial system anyway. Um, the mouse brain doesn't experience dementia the same way the human brain does. It doesn't even really experience the kind of ageing you get in the human brain because mice just don't live long enough and they just don't have the complexity to get that sort of uh, level of dementia and aging um, so anything you do there is slightly artificial but uh, the main processes and the main systems are maintained so you can cross compare between the two as long as you are careful you don't extrapolate too far yeah so maybe you want to talk a little bit actually about what your specific project is with microglia so we're looking um, a few years back now a GWAS study came out which picked out some um, uh, changes in mutated genes, which can be either protective or um, uh, increase the likelihood that you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. And so one of them that came up was the PLC2 mutation. Uh, so this mutation, a slight change in one of the amino acids in PLC2, which is found in the brain in microglia, and only microglia in the brain for the most part. So, and if you have this particular mutation, you're slightly slightly less likely to develop late onset Alzheimer's than someone without this mutation. So what we've been trying to do is work out what this mutation does to the protein, what uh, changes that causes and how we can replicate it. Now this was found in the humans, um, but the PLC2 is in mice and we were able to induce the same mutation in the mouse that we find in humans. And so we can study that effect in that system. And the idea from then, uh, because PLC2 is an enzyme, it's classically druggable. So we'll be able to work on activators and inhibitors um, and develop drugs with various drug companies um, to look at treatments. So see if we can get people with the wild type, the standard wild type um, form of PLC2, give them the same protection these people with the mutation has and maybe extend it. Okay, great. Um, how, how's that going? <laughs> oh, it's going. <laughs> um, now we're only, we're only so far in, but um, we've discovered... A uh, paper just um, on the preprint service now about PC2. Uh, there's a lot of people working on this, so it's a bit competitive at the moment. Um, but we've found um, that it's a hyperactive function. Um, so it's more activated in this mutation than it is in the wild type. There's a lot of other um, caveats on that and downstream effects. Um, but it does give us a way um, that we can easily manipulate this system, I say easily. Uh, we can manipulate this system um, and hopefully lead to more clinical work years down the line. Mm, that was interesting actually you said about because it's an enzyme that opens up maybe more or easier. Well it's it. classically druggable so yeah. you know, it, it, it's vulnerable to activators and inhibitors which we can sit in. And because uh, one interesting thing is because it's microglia uh, are basically say tissue macrophages. There's been a lot of work done on uh, macrophages and in PLC2, um, which in macrophages in other parts of the body rather than in the microglia in the brain. 
where there are mutations in this that cause various diseases like PLAD, um, where if this um, particular protein isn't functioning properly, you get uh, particularly immune syndrome. So there's lots of work done this outside the brain, but because, uh, because uh, classical neuroscientists like myself haven't really thought about immunity um, for more, I mean, it's really just come into the system the last 10 years that people can start to think about the inflammation and immunity inside the brain. Before that, we were all saying, oh, it's um, immune protected, it's all about neurons. Maybe we'll talk about astrocytes sometimes, but Michael Lear weren't really thought about. I mean, the fact that we called them the little blue cell, probably indication how much people thought about them. So there's a lot of uh, open work here to be looked at, and we can pull a lot from people uh, who haven't worked in neuroscience before. For example, um, Phil Taylor, my boss, and uh, Paul, Megan and Sarah's boss, aren't actually neuroscientists. They come from immunity background. So we're putting all these different things in there to have a look at systems that haven't really been studied in the brain before. Mm. What was, was there sort of a pivotal point? Was there a big study that showed that microglia were important somehow or suddenly picked up that complements overactivated? Uh, maybe we could come back to you, Megan, talk about, a bit more about complement and your actual project and maybe what's changed in the field for people yeah, to take so note? I think, I don't think there's been like an, like a really pivotal point where the field has suddenly woken up to inflammation. I think people have been kind of quietly working on it for decades. Um, but the recent genetic studies have really kind of suggested actually this could be causative. So I think before it was kind of neuroinflammation was seen as maybe a consequence of disease. Maybe it's just um, something's gone wrong with the neurons and the um, immune cells start responding later on. But now the genetic studies are sort of suggesting maybe actually that these inflammatory differences, they could be driving the disease. Um, and there are st studies that have started to show actually these inflammatory changes start earlier and earlier than we've realised. And that's because you found mutations in certain genes that are part of inflammation pathways. Yeah, so they've done these massive genome-wide association studies um, where they basically look at variations across enormous populations. Um, and they show that these small variants kind of add up um, and that you can increase your genetic risk. This is Sarah's area of expertise more than mine, really, but uh, they talk about polygenic risk scores. And basically by having lots of mutations with relatively low risk, then you can increase your overall risk um, of Alzheimer's disease. Sarah's doing big nodding. Yeah, lots of nodding going on. And you can, um, they basically um, looked at all the pathways that these, um, these variations are in, and they found that a lot of them are immune cells, um, predominantly microglia. Um, uh, sorry, just to jump in, although what Tom was talking about was a protective mutation, although yeah. it's still in the uh, inflammation pathway gene. Yeah, so that would be that the, um, if the protective variant is just that it's causing less damage than the detrimental variant, if that makes sense. Someone reword that for me. My brain's not doing that. Sarah? <laughs> so, like, there's, there's some complement genes that have also come up in these GWAS studies, and we know that if you've got variations in those genes, you are increasing your risk of Alzheimer's disease. And that could be because these are regulators, so they've got an inhibitory role. In pillc 2 the mutation itself is the protective. So if you have this mutation, you are protected. 
It yeah, basically so that depends wouldn't... on what the function of the protein is, whether you're making the protein do its job better or worse. That's yes. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that, would, that, that then wouldn't add to your risk score. Do, no, it would reduce it. Those, yeah, it would reduce it. Okay, so Ashley, Megan, let's come back to you again. Because... Uh, one of the questions I've got is about your work and how is it clinically relevant? You haven't told us that much about your work, so maybe combine the two a bit more about your work and how is it clinically relevant? Okay, so um, with Sarah, I'm interested in trying to work out at what point complement becomes dysregulated. So we have this uh, triple knock-in Alzheimer's model um, hang on, triple knock-in amyloid model of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we've back-crossed it onto various complement-deficient mouse models. Um, and we're basically interested in trying to tease apart the pathway to work out um, at which point complement becomes dysregulated in the disease and how that's contributing to Alzheimer's disease. Um, we also have some complement therapeutic um, drugs in the lab and we're trying to use those to see whether we can impact on the uh, trajectory of the decline and various measures of disease pathology. And these are drugs that you feed to the mice? Yes, yeah, so these are antibodies that are made in-house um, and they basically target complement proteins and block the pathway. Um, what stage of the mouse's life do you use them because this comes up a lot about yeah there are some very effective drugs but you have to use them 20 years before yeah there is a, a project going on in the group at the moment where they're looking at treating um with an anti-complement drug early and late in disease and seeing how that affects um the outcome um because it, what what I guess we've sort of talked about is that now neuroinflammation and specifically with you guys the complement cascade isn't a late stage mm. phenomenon. It's potentially the cause. So it would be early on in the disease pathway yeah. so you'd want to get in early. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the cause, but because there's probably some other trigger, but I would say that it's probably driving the disease and possibly from quite early on. So if we can target that earlier on, then that would be awesome. Um, the problem with that, obviously, is that when somebody present, presents at the clinic with symptoms, they, they're possibly quite late on in the disease. So um, what we would really love to be able to do is try and identify some biomarkers or some way of identifying people who might be at risk of getting dementia and who people in whom anti-complement treatment might be beneficial. Um, but there are already clinical, uh, there are, are already anti-complement drugs being used in the clinic to treat uh, neuromyelitis optica, which we just know as NMO. Um, and that's basically an inflammatory demyelinating disease that affects the nerves that innervate the eye. Um, and those are, um, there's a drug called eculizumab, which targets C5, which is part of the complement cascade. And so that's used as a drug in the clinic. So we're hoping that we might be able to work out how complement is dysregulated in Alzheimer's disease and then work out which parts of the pathway need to be targeted and then work out how to do that. 
Uh, so that's the end goal. <laughs> okay. This is quite a simple question, but um, how many complement proteins are there? You mentioned C5. Not a simple question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not a simple question. So they are, there's a pathway, they say there's like over 40 proteins. The pathway itself isn't too terrible in the in theory it only goes up to like c9 with a couple of caveats to that sentence there's like c1q c1r c1s they get there's loads of enzymatic enzymatic steps throughout the pathway where they get broken down into um subunits or parts that then go on and do different things um but the bit where it gets confusing is that there are actually lots of proteins that have multiple functions and regulators so for instance clustering is a protein which has a bajillion functions throughout the body um, and is known as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And there's a huge field of research on clustering, which I'm not super familiar with, but it is also a complement regulator. That's where the line gets a bit blurred. 20 years ago, yeah, that's about right. 20 years ago, I did a, a, a project in a heart transplant lab and we were using complement as the biomarker. So we were uh, taking biopsies from people's heart transplants and looking for complement protein as the biomarker for eventual humoral rejection. Could you use complement as your biomarker? How it I guess it depends how early on in the process you think that it's being over. There have been quite a few studies where people are looking at complement biomarkers and they've got um, age match controls, patients who have mild cognitive impairment and people that go on to develop Alzheimer's disease and trying to see can you identify biomarkers that would either go in the progression from control to MCI, mild cognitive impairment, or involved in the progression from mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's disease? And there have been a few studies that have come out from our lab as well. Before we started, I think Factor H has come out of one, and uh, there have been a few others. Okay. So promising work? Yeah, promising. It's ways that you can look at it as well, because um, you want to be able to to not only look for biomarkers, but look for biomarkers as well in readily available substance. So you want to look at them in blood. So you can easily get people coming into clinic and you can get blood from them and then you can look for biomarkers there. If you've got to look for a biomarker, say in CSF, that's an invasive procedure for someone who's already ill. You don't want to be doing that. So it's, it's a really difficult study and it is, there are people looking for biomarkers everywhere. I'm not sure we've got any projects on the go anymore in the lab looking for biomarkers. But I think if we find something interesting, it is, we do have access to samples that we can say, well, actually, do you see this as an early time point? Could this be used as a biomarker? And complement itself is in place, isn't it? The complement proteins are, say, on the synapse or on a protein. They're not freely circulating in the blood handily for biomarker studies. Some of them are, them are. tissue, like some of them bind to the... Um, cell membranes and they're deposited all over um, but a lot of them are in solution and sorry in fluid phase and a lot of the time when the membrane bound um, like fragments so for example C3 is a protein which binds forms a covalent bond to um, a target membrane um, it's only the C3B fragment that forms that covalent bond and the C3A fragment is released in circulation. Um, and that is a uh, cell recruitment um, chemotactic factor. Um, but then 
C3B then goes on to form convertases and is then degraded into like IC3B and then C3C and then C3CDG and it goes all the way through the alphabet. It's ridiculous. But by looking at the um, ratios of the different breakdown fragments, then you can get an indication of where the complement has been activated. Okay. That sounds cool. Yeah. Well, cool in theory, except that it's actually very difficult to raise antibody against antibodies against that. So there are um, projects in other groups where they're trying to do like mass spec stuff to try and identify different fragments. Yeah, I was using antibody to C3D and C4D, I think, in okay. yeah. heart tissue. But obviously yeah. biopsying a heart is easier than biopsying someone's brain. Sarah, I've got a question for you here that says, how can studying development aid our understanding of Alzheimer's? Would you like to pick up that quickly? Yeah, so I'll, I'm going to answer this based on the synapse because that's sort of my area of expertise. So also, we, the synapse is great. I don't think we talk yeah. about the synapse enough. I like it. <laughs> so as the brain develops, it produces more connections that it's ever, ever going to need. So these excess, these connections, these synapses need to be eliminated to increase the efficiency of your brain. And this process is called synaptic pruning. Now, there's an analogy, you can think of this in terms of like a rose bush. So when you prune a rose bush, you cut off the weaker dying branches so that the bigger ones, the stronger ones will flourish. And that's really what happens in the brain. So we know that synaptic pruning is a normal event during development, but we also know that synaptic loss is a very early event in Alzheimer's disease. We know from mouse models that both during development and in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, complement proteins are tagging synapses for removal by microglia. But what we don't know is if the triggers are the same. If the trigger that causes synaptic pruning in development is the same trigger that's reactivated within Alzheimer's disease. At the moment, we just don't know that. We'd like to know that, but we just don't. Uh, the other aspect we can use mouse models is they enable us to look at synapses at very early time points in development. We can also look at early time points in disease. Now, if you think, um, if you can compare animal models to humans, now, in, we have a cohort of mice that we know we can 100% guarantee that these mice are going to develop Alzheimer's. We can look at early time points, so we can look at the equivalent of decades before in the mouse and say, what is a very early event? We can't do that in humans. We can't, if, if we, even if you could get brains from the brain bank, we don't know if those people are definitively, would they have got Alzheimer's disease if they lived another 20, 30 years? We just don't know that question quickly more about the human point you said about um synaptic pruning happens it's a regular event during mm -hmm. development does that mean it's happening just at, in the embryo stage fetus stage while we're growing up is it an adult event as well or it sounds very much like it's a very very early you know baby stage so yeah so you're thinking after birth so if you're thinking when the baby's born and then it's producing all these excess neural circuits and then you get to about toddlerhood. And if you think of a toddler and you think of a child that's can't cope. might appear at any moment if you say yeah. too loudly. Can't, can't cope with their emotions, is all over the place and everything is so confusing. It's because they've got all this haywire in their brain. They've got all these excess connections. So by the time you're about 10 years old, you've actually got half the number of synapses in your brain that you, than you had when you were two year old. So it's really 
in that young childhood. And it, it, it does make sense when you think of it and you think of a child's behavior and you think of the first two years of your life, think of how much you have to learn. You need all you need to strengthen. You need to strengthen those synapses that you are using all the time. But those that are underused, those that are weak and are not required, they are the ones that are getting pruned. But we just don't know what the triggers are to initiate this at this moment. Um, throughout development, you'll have um, you don't have the same amount or the same genes aren't used at exactly the same levels throughout development. So it could be a completely different process. It could be that this gene is switched on that controls synaptic pruning during early development and then just isn't switched on again. And it's a completely different system. Is, is that right? Or it could, alternatively, it could be exactly the same system. Yeah, it could be. As I said, we just don't know at the moment, but we can use, we can use mouse models to look at development and we can try and understand what's going on there. That's not to say that's exactly what's happening in Alzheimer's disease, but this is a fantastic model that we can have. And if we can understand it here, and is that going to aid our understanding? It would give us a starting point in Alzheimer's disease to focus on this. And really, that's what we need. Mm. And to sort of then overlay this human situation we've just talked about into mice, Tom obviously pointed out that mice just don't live as long as humans, yeah. <laughs> not even kind of close. So it's all sped up, is it? They, they do all their development within the first few weeks, the equivalent yes. that we do as a toddler. Okay. Yeah, so we look at synaptic pruning and we say that synaptic pruning is finished by the age of about P28. So that's 28 days postnatal. So you're looking within the first month of life of a mouse that these pr pr pruning processes are taking place. What's happening to your mice right now? Now we're all at home. So uh, that's kind of me that's in charge of maintaining things at the moment. Um, we are trying to maintain the colonies on minimum tick over so that we've just got enough breeding pairs that we can keep them going. Um, we are quite fortunate in that we were not in the middle of any like big uh, cohort experiments. Um, so we've not had to lose anything. I know that quite a few groups have been really, really affected by that, um, by having to cull um, mice from experiments, which is, yeah, really, really horrible. Um, so we, it will take us a while once this is over to ramp up again. But in the meantime, we're just keeping them on minimum takeover. I'm allowed, I'm classed somehow as a key worker. Um, so I can pop in every so often to get tissue for time points. So I've just kind of um, identified the really essential mice that we need to collect tissue from. Um, and so I'm going in like once a month. Um, I guess it's kind of just Sarah's point about, you know, by P28, these mice have finished that yeah. development stage. So, so but then the plus side, yeah, the plus side of looking at the early stages though, is that it doesn't take that long to age the mice to that stage. Um, Maths again. Yeah, maths, getting <laughs> good at it. Um, it's when you're looking at the two year old mice, um, if you've got partway through aging mice for time point tissue and you've lost mice at this stage, that can be, I mean, if you're looking at the average postdoc, it's two to three years. Um, if you've lost mice that you've been aging for a very long time, then this is a very devastating situation. But then, you know, COVID, there's no good time to have a pandemic and there are much worse problems associated with this whole situation. So, Yeah, this is where I feel I should bring up 
about uh, flies. I think I mention this fairly regularly. I used to work on Drosophila and their lifespan is like 40 days, guys. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> mm. We've got some people in work who work on flies. Yes. Maybe yeah. I can interview them too. Yeah, I'm sure they'd be very keen. Yeah. They often turn up in my, um, in my staining jars full of alcohol. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they're really attracted to that. They love it, but it kills them. I mean, guess yeah. like humans. Yeah, just like them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Tom, you haven't said anything for a while. Do you want to tell us something more about microglia or what's happening to your mice? Uh, well, we've, we've suffered quite badly for our mice. We had quite a lot going on um, and lots of aging studies that were set up. So we did have to call back quite a few lines at the beginning of this because um, we didn't know obviously how the staff at the, uh, the facilities would be affected and yeah. what would have to be shut down, how bad this was going to get. So we had to take precautions. Um, a few things we've kept going. We had some behaviour work some people in the lab were doing that was just too far gone um, to risk losing. So that's kept going. Um, but so is similarly that in to... Relation, sorry, is that in relation to Alzheimer's disease and yeah. microglia? So, so what sort of things, I know it's not your research, but just out of interest, what kind of behavioural studies do you use? Uh, so this particular one is looking at a different uh, genetic variant, which is a risk factor, a bit more simply. Uh, and we're just looking at how if you knock out this protein, how does that change the mouse's behaviour later in life, especially if you cross it into one of the um, Alzheimer's models we talked about, so the APP model. Um, so I think uh, the person doing it is doing basic uh, light maze tests, um, nothing too invasive, uh, sucrose uh, tests to see if, how they respond to increased sucrose um, to look at their depression levels and things like that. So you said you've made a complete knockout of this gene, or maybe not you personally, someone yeah. has, and then you're crossing it into another mouse with a, another genetic background. Well, I mean, so you're sort of gene on gene on gene, a bit like how you were talking about how people can have added up risk factors by having various mutations. Well, one of the best things about the mice, of course, is that we have all of these multiple strains. People have been studying the mice for 100 years, so we understand it really well. Um, so we have in our lab, I don't know how many strains, a couple of dozen different strains of different type of mice with different risk genes. Uh, so the POC2 one, ABI3, uh, various other ones. And then we have the models of disease as well, like the um, triple uh, knock-in APP mouse, which has three different mutations that lead to increased uh, amyloid inside the brain. And we can easily cross these back and forth because we understand their genetic lines, understand where they've been, we've genotyped them. So it's easy for us to cross these and make multiple knockouts. Um, we've got some mice with uh, the APP, one of the risk genes, and a gene that makes microglia uh, have GFP and so you can identify them easily they've got the green fluorescents. Um, Everyone loves a fluorescent mouse, I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, these mice are a bit crazy. When we first crossed them, the entire mouse was fluorescent. It was weird. Wow. So we had to do that down a bit. So just the brain was fluorescent. <laughs> so these weird fluorescent ears are very strange. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, um, Megan, you had your hand up like we're yeah. at school. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to add to that. Um, a lot of the time when you've got... Um, gene mutations in uh, immune-related immune, immune related genes, um, you might not expect to see any um, overt phenotype. Um, and it's not until you cross it onto something like an amyloid model where there's a trigger 
Um, but then you see, well, normally the amyloid does X to the um, microglial cell, but when you've got rid of such and such a regulator and then you give it amyloid, then you see this like really, really exaggerated um, immune response. And so that's why a lot of the time um, we cross immune gene uh, variations or mutations onto um, Alzheimer's disease uh, models. And that's exaggerated to be more like the human disease or exaggerated so you can do more functional assays, behavioral assays, I mean, it's, drill down a bit more into the function of the protein. Yeah, it's, it depends on what your gene of interest is, but it allows you to probe what the gene is doing in that, in that context. And it also gives us the controls. We have these two lines that we understand very well and have been crossed of each other. So you don't have all these other genetic factors coming in. Um, and we can directly control them, uh, compare them to each other. And they can grow at the same age, we can have the same controls, same room, same everything. Um, it allows very easy, this is the effect because of this, rather than any other outside effects. So like an example of that is, um, we've got a mouse model which is lacking a complement receptor, uh, complement regulator called CRRY, C-R-R-Y. I call them curry mice. Um, and we that not having that receptor isn't a problem in a normal, healthy, otherwise healthy mouse. But um, in an Alzheimer's disease mouse, they have an accumulation of um, C3, which is the core complement, one of the core complement molecules. Um, and so not having that regulated then means that there's a stimulus for inflammation and then you don't have the regulation and so it just gets out of control. Yeah, because we can take out particular stimulus. So we have the APP model, and then Megan, you worked on the town model before, yeah? So we yeah. can see how exactly this particular stimulus is affecting the thing compared to this one, rather than having a whole thing mixed together as you have in the human samples. Mm -hmm. It just allows you to ask quite specific questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. I think we're sort of coming to the end now. So um, is the... Oh, very quickly, Megan, because uh, I said at the beginning we might get on oh, to this, yeah. What's your role of dignity and well-being contact? We all know that science can be quite tricky sometimes. Not just science, lots of, lots of jobs, the high-pressure jobs. Basically, as a dignity and well-being contact, um, I've been on some training courses which have helped me um, in learning what the procedures are at the university. Um, and the point of the role is primarily a support role. So I'm just kind of around to listen to people if they're having a hard time. But the training courses mean that I am vaguely, hopefully aware of uh, the procedures that are in place. So if someone's having some work problems or, even, or home problems or they need some mental health support, then um, I'm able to point them in the right direction to get the help that they need. Um, and then there's also loads of really great schemes in the university that people don't aren't necessarily aware of. So it's drawing attention to things like, oh, you guys should all be getting out and doing some exercise and there's this great walking group or that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so it's, yes, just about, and also kind of standing up for people's well-being a lot of the time. Um, you know, you have PIs who are a little bit overexcited about getting the work done and maybe not super understanding. And it's about saying, 
okay, but let's consider these people and their well-being and that sort of thing. And don't um, talk about how when you worked in America, you worked 16 hours a day and you pitched. Yeah, not healthy. For not yeah. <laughs> so Cardiff's very, very, very good at trying to encourage a, a really good working environment and looking after people's mental health. Um, and I think dignity and well-being contacts are kind of common across universities. I'm not sure how common, but they have them in Edinburgh University when I was there as well. Um, also a UK DRI place. Just yes, but them. completely unrelated because um, <laughs> it's not a DRI thing. No. Um, but yeah, so we're basically just there to promote health and well-being in work. Great. I think that is a very lovely end to today's podcast. So I'd like to say thank you very much to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we will have profiles of all today's panellists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts, if they have them. This is the point where at, at least half of the people go, I don't have one. Um, <laughs> if you have any questions, uh, please Join our WhatsApp group, chat to people about it. Um, and finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean and SoundCloud and all the other places you find our podcast. And remember to visit our website for other information to support your work. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.